0: You're listening to the Gate Charlotte Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Oh, it's always good to be back at the gate. I enjoy my visits here. And uh, I'm especially happy to have my wife with me this morning. She does not get the opportunity to travel with me much. Um, But um, we are celebrating tomorrow 45 years of Valentine's Day, and um, I got up this morning and I had a flashback, and I had to uh, confirm it with her. I was so smitten with her, and when you see her later, you'll understand why. Uh, but I was so smitten with her that I bought her, I don't know whether they make them anymore. Uh, this Valentine's card was this big. And I verified it, and she said, yeah, I still have it. Amazing. So anyway, go, so we had a wonderful time yesterday with um, John and Tiff. They uh, are such gracious hosts, uh, treated us so well. And I believe that I'm going to get the same treatment this morning from all of you. All right. Well, we're on the eve of Valentine's Day. And and, uh, before we get started, I have five tips for the women. You may want to write them down. Are you interested? Uh, When it comes to men, it's really important, isn't it? I'm stating the obvious. He has a job. And that he's good at helping around the house. Everybody agreed on that? It's important that a man makes you laugh, right? It's important that you have a man that you can count on. It's important that you have a man that loves you and spoils you. We're on the same page? May I add to that? It's important that those four men don't know each other, okay? (laughs) Now, I set you up because we're going to need a little levity for what follows. You can go ahead and find my text in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. And I'll join you there in just a few minutes. Uh, you know, I recently read, and it made so much sense to me, that the human head can weigh anywhere between 5 and 11 pounds. Some of you, maybe even more. And a recent study has indicated that with all the time that we spent with, spend with our heads in this position, downward, looking at screens, we live in screen land, don't we? Unfortunate. That that in itself can add up to 60 pounds of pressure on your neck and your head. Now, some of you may think that's worthless information, but, you know, the gravity of negativity is a real thing. And I think that's the reason why the Scripture says so much about lifting up your heads, in a very trauma-ridden week, Jesus made it clear to the disciples that they should lift up their heads. I I love what David says in so, such poetic terms when he said, I will lift up my head to the hills from which cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. It really is so much these days now than ever before about perspective. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Now, some people would uh, challenge that idea that it's not about perspective, that what you're talking about is some kind of Pollyannish optimism. But I really do believe that it's important, as I've said here before, as believers in an unshakable kingdom, that we are to see what we believe rather than believing what we see. If that's not the case, I'm wasting your time this morning. And you're wasting mine. You know, I was thinking this past week, you know, is it really possible to have peace of mind? I mean, think about that. I know what the Scripture says about peace, but I think maybe we have grossly misunderstood the concept of peace. Can you have peace of mind? I really think to say you have peace of mind in many ways is an oxymoron because The mind is always restless. The mind does not have the capacity for peace. In the Buddhist culture, and I hope that doesn't offend you, but in the Buddhist culture, they talk about the monkey mind, that there are thousands of these monkeys that are swinging from one limb of thought to the other. Does that sound familiar to anyone? The monkey mind. Next time you feel like you're losing yours, remember it's the monkey mind. <laughs> now again, I don't. I don't think that it is irreverent for me to make a reference to another tradition. I think that there's great truth in that, and um, you know, our our bodies are unlike our minds. Our minds are constantly in motion, even. When you go to sleep at night, your mind is constantly churning, isn't it? So in reality, and this may sound trite to some of you, peace is not a concept. Peace is a person. Jesus made it very plain, and I think we miss this quite often in his last will and testament in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, you remember, he starts out when they became acutely aware that he was about to leave them. They thought permanently, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not true, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you, now listen to this part, that where I am, there you may be also. He did not say where he was going, but where I am, there you may be also. It's unfortunate that the old translation of that passage says mansions, really it has to do with something far, far beyond the scope of our faulty understanding of some sort of mansion that is waiting on us on the other side. Am I in trouble already? But when Jesus was using that language, it was familiar to them. This is language that had to do with the last will and testament. And he will close out that chapter by saying this, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, not this fragile peace that is contingent upon happenings and happiness, because God would much rather you have peace and joy than to be happy. Well, that sucked all the air out of the room. He really would. He'd much rather you have your inheritance of peace and joy than to be happy. Now, I've already started meddling, so I'll get quickly to my text. In Luke 7, beginning in verse 11, soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, And his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when they saw her, he had compassion, or when he saw her, he had compassion with her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, or the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave, to, gave him to his mother, and fear seized them all, and they glorified God. A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people, and this report about him began to spread through the whole of Judea. Now, I want you, if you will, just to take a breath for a moment because my topic may be a bit startling, especially for a culture such as this. So bear with me, just take a breath. I'm going to talk to you this morning about what do we do with our pain? What do we do with our pain? What do we do with the problem of pain? Now, you already know probably that Jesus will raise three people from the dead. This young man, who remains anonymous from Nain. there's certainly Lazarus, the most noted of the three, and then Jairus' daughter. Now, make sure you don't hear me say something that I didn't say, because I understand what happens in many cases, as a communicator. People say, there is no such thing as unbiased thought. You bring every old experience into every new experience, and what you will hear may not necessarily be what I said. So the question I had this morning is, I've had several times, were there other people that Jesus raised from the dead that were not recorded in the Scriptures? John's Gospel would seem to reflect the possibility of that because he closes his gospel by saying, If everything Jesus ever did or said were recorded, there wouldn't be enough volumes in the world to contain it. Now, that sounds ridiculous to us who live in the information age because of the ability for us to store massive amounts of information just in a smartphone. But I still believe it's true, as it was when John made that statement in the closing chapter of his gospel, simply because Jesus could say so much and so very few words. I have, for the last 25 years, been still mining words that he uttered on the cross, and I have not even come close, not even come close to underfa- understanding the full scope of these words, it is finished. And I challenged any scholar, as a matter of fact, I, I honestly think that many of us need to go to the Apostle Paul who has no rivals whatsoever, the man that gives us two-thirds of the New Testament the man who, again, had no rivals. He was brilliant. He was a linguist. Uh, he had revelatory experiences caught up in the third heaven where he saw things that, e- that were ineffable, that defied his ability to describe what he saw. And for us to assume, just because we become scholars, quote unquote, scholars of the scripture, that we've even come close to plumbing the depths. Of the manifold wisdom of God is arrogance gone to seed. I mean, I love it, the hyperbole that Paul uses in Ephesians, that we all may know, that we all may come to comprehend the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of God's love, because he understands we're such linear thinkers. He understands that we want to quantify and qualify everything, but then he goes on and says, which, by the way, is past understanding. I think sometimes when we reach the end of everything we know, that that is where we find God. The problem with most people is they tend to understand everything far too soon because they'd rather have a mind that makes sense rather than a heart that makes love. Are you still here? So what I was setting you up for, Jesus has raised three people from the dead in his ministry. Were there any instances where he had the opportunity to do so, and he did not? Now, I'm sure that in this particular culture, there are some of you, and rightfully so, and I agree with you, I'm not in disagreement with you, that would say something like this, that a dear friend of mine, it's an ax- it's a aphorism that he coined. I refuse to lower the standard of God's Word to my lack of experience. And I agree with that. I have no problem with that. But one of the things that I'm encountering almost weekly now with people from around the country is that they are dealing with complex situations They're honestly like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know, here we have the Word made flesh who teaches them the Word beginning with Moses and the prophets. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Yet they were still in a stupor. Would it shock you if I tell you that what a lot of people these days don't need is another satisfying answer? They don't need you to point them to some Bible verse. Mm. Did I say that? (laughs) Now, what I want you to understand, by no means am I disrespecting the Scripture. I've been a student of it for 45 years. But I do understand that there are some things that we go through that are so puzzling, that are so complicated, that are so traumatizing. And this text, whether you noticed or not, it throbs with tragedy and trauma. This is is really deeply seated in the psyche of the world's population now, especially here in the West. So many conundrums, so many difficult things that they can't sort out. I heard it once said, and I hope I get this right, most people would prefer a satisfying untruth rather than a satisfying truth. Or an unsatisfying truth. They, I'll, go, I'll go at it again since you're so gracious. Most people would prefer a satisfying untruth rather than an unsatisfying truth. Let's look at the context of this episode. On the day that Jesus arrives in Nain, which is about uh, six miles south of Nazareth, you know, his hometown in Galilee. Uh, Nain, by the way, was this small farming town at the time. Uh, the population might have not been more than a hundred people. Uh, the word Nain means beautiful green pastures. It was the word "name" infer, nain inferred its beauty. It was a picturesque place. It was nestled at the foothills of a mountain range, and you could see the mountains in the, in the distance, and some would say that you could see as far as the emerald Mediterranean Sea. It was the kind of place that was not, it was, it was not a busy thoroughfare. Uh, there was only one road that went into it. I mean, some of you know of places like that. You don't just pass through them. You have to be going there to get there. I mean, some of the places I've been in life, in rural, remote areas, I literally think when I get there, this is not the end of the world, but I can at least see it from here. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And so, I don't know whether you noticed in verse 11, soon afterwards, soon afterward what, Jesus had healed the centurion, and there was a huge crowd that had begun to follow him. There's this crowd dynamic that is going on. They are totally enamored with what he's just done. The buzz is picking up about what's happened. Jesus is on this long, arduous walk in the direction of Nain. I'm not entirely sure that he knew why he was going there. You know, we assume a lot of things, don't we, when we read the Scripture, We had just assumed that Jesus was always, that he was always on. (laughs) Does that sound blasphemous to you? You know, no, he was totally God, but he was totally man as well. And I'm sure like Abram, uh, his ancient, ancient progenitor, that there were a lot of times that he was going not knowing. That ought to be encouraging to some of you when you read the Scripture, that Jesus didn't always quite know. He, he, he understood that clarity was overrated, and intrigue definitely was underestimated. And so he just would go in a particular direction, maybe not clearly understanding why. Does that sound disrespectful to you? It humanizes Jesus. I think maybe we have so deified him that we need some more humanizing of Jesus. Because that's what's going to unfold in this passage of Scripture. I'll just, you know, I'll I'll put it to you in practical terms. You know, we never know as we navigate our life, do we? We never know, no matter how well we've laid our plans, what is waiting on us in an unsuspected intersection. I personally do not believe in coincidence as it's used by the culture because coincidence usually is a reference to some event in my life that has no rhyme or reason whatsoever. I abandoned that definition a long time ago when something would happen that seemed strange and unusual. Well, that was a coincidence. No, I hold very much to the idea of synchronicity and serendipity and understanding. That God in His infinite wisdom, before I was ever conceived, cast out across the landscape of my life predestination points, and they landed in places where I would meet people. The word coincidence is a geometric term that describes also how two lines perfectly and they perfectly converge. And there's a convergence point that is going to take place here in this place called Nain. You know, that should cause, that should, that should pique our expectancy, you know, because you know as well as I do the old saying, those who expect nothing are seldom disappointed. And so I believe that Jesus, even though he not always had, didn't always have clarity, he did live in this high energy space of expectancy, knowing that his father had predestined every aspect of his life and it's getting ready to happen in Nain. So he's got this massive crowd that are following him. His fame is growing and burgeoning, and he's heading toward Nain. Maybe, you know, I can speculate. Maybe, you know, we all need to read our Bibles with far more imagination, don't we? Maybe he'd heard of it. Maybe he'd seen a brochure wow, that's a beautiful spot. I think I'll go there. And it's a small town, and I can get away. Because he was always looking for opportunities. He was a magnet, but he was always looking for opportunities to get away from people. (laughs) So as he's approaching, there's this convergence that takes place this massive crowd who's been mesmerized by his miracle, but they're clueless that they're on a collision course. They're clueless of this coincidence that is waiting them. I am restraining myself because I just have this strong urge to talk to you even more about coincidence because so many of you right now, Especially because of the present situation you're in and the pain you're experiencing physically, mentally, relationally, vocationally, on whatever level, it has hijacked, it has handicapped your ability to live in this expectancy that tomorrow. There might be someone or something that you intersect with that will resurrect dreams that you thought were dead and gone. You know, God hopes for us when we don't hope for ourselves. He is the God of hope. Come on now, He is the God of hope. So you feel hopeless? That's fine. That's totally fine. That's surprising to a lot of people. I'm not going to rebuke you or browbeat you for that. What about the future? God is the future. We live on such linear existence. I started here. I'm on my way to there. I was somewhere, now I'm trying to go somewhere, and I feel like I'm nowhere, and you forget how to be now here. Are you okay? Now take a close look at what unfolded. Did you close your Bible already? All this converges in that particular context that I described And Jesus does not he's not distracted by the mourners. Most of us right now are living in a st- and I understand the importance this, this is something that we really need to be taught in our community, the importance of lament. Understanding that grief is a process, always is a process. We've not, it's our responsibility. I'm, I'm talking about myself. We've not done a good job in teaching people how to process grief. The various stages of grief. And forgetting that all these things have to, listen, joy and grief have to exist alongside of one another. They're they're in juxtaposition of one another. They're not opposed to one another. They have to mourning and dancing. Notice in the language of the Old Testament, he will turn your mourning into dancing, but you often don't get to dancing until you've gone through the liminal space of mourning. All truth has to be held in tension. All truth has to be held in tension. To say that things are dark implies that there's also light The antithesis of it has to be there. To say that there's faith also implies that there must be uncertainty. All truth is held in tension. To say that there's love implies that there's what? Fear. These guitars were tuned this morning. They're held in tension. That's how they stay in that harmonic balance, right? But I'll get, are you one of the guitar players? Okay. I know the answer to this already because I raised three guitar players. Just as sure as you came down there and sat down and that guitar is sitting on that rack, it is losing its tension. It's going out of tune. And more than likely, when you come back up later, I'll see you do what I watch my boys do for years, you'll throw that thing around your neck and you'll probably reach up to the tuning bar, pitch your ear toward it, because it could be a little flat, could be a little sharp. Some of you are wondering, what on earth is he talking about? The tension that you're in right now, where it feels a little sharp, a little flat, This is all the working of the Holy Spirit trying to bring you into harmony because if you don't, see, one person said, and I love this, and this is offensive to a lot of my charismatic brethren, but I, you know, probably shouldn't have qualified it. (laughs) It's heaven all the way to heaven, and it's hell all the way to hell. But this is what I want you to see before you got me off the subject. said, the Lord saw her. You realize how powerful that is, that Luke the physician made note of that? He saw her. He didn't see what everybody else, he didn't see what was obvious. Most of us are masters at missing the obvious. Because... We are preconditioned to focus on certain things, and what you focus on will always determine what you miss. He saw her. What did this group of people, these mourners that were probably dressed in sackcloth and had ashen faces, and the Hebrew people were known. They were pros at mourning. I don't mean that to sound like it's anti-Semitic. It's not. They just really were. You know, they they didn't suppress their feelings. So you got all this groaning and moaning. Jesus probably could hear them before he ever saw them. But when he gets up there, he's not distracted by that. He sees her. Well, see, they see, listen, they see a widow. Well, she's already lost her husband. How long ago that was? I don't know, but now she's lost her son. A widow in this particular culture was the most vulnerable and helpless person that could be. There were no social services. There were no safety nets like we're familiar with. This woman probably was considering her own impending death because she had nothing to live for. And some of you know how painful this is. It's a terrible thing for parents to outlive their children. Nothing more tragic than that. She has outlived her husband. She's outlived her son. But he saw her. What do you think that he saw? Something that certainly wasn't obvious. And I hope you're beginning to connect the dots here to a great degree and understanding what I was talking about earlier when I talked about perspective. See, the way you see things right now, all all it is is a viewpoint, which is a a view from a point. And all, all all of your preferences are determined or influenced by your reference. So Jesus didn't see death, did he? He saw this woman. And something catalytic in nature began to happen. I mean, and before, I, before I move on from that, uh, do you think that it's possible, is, is, is it just too much liberty I'm taking with the text to suggest that this woman in her traumatized state of mind was disappointed in God. Now, don't look side to side, but I'm sure that there are a host of people right now that are deeply disappointed in God. Was she disappointed in God? It's possible, isn't it? Can I tell you, those of you that are deeply disappointed in God at this very moment, you're really not disappointed in God at all. No. That's not the issue, because God hasn't failed you. It's your expectations of God that have failed you. I thought, surely. And most suffering is exacerbated as a result of us having an unhealthy attachment to expected outcomes. I mean, gosh, what... Why is it these days in particular, we, we choose to live in our, this limited space called our minds? Now this, this will, uh, I'm sure, touch a nerve in a lot of people because I knew what I was going to say before I'm getting ready to say this and it always causes me to cringe just a little bit. So I want to address the overthinkers in the room. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? (laughs) I've heard it said that that overthinking is the art of creating problems that weren't even there to begin with. (laughs) Honey, don't look at me like that. (laughs) You can overthink a small problem until it becomes absolutely insurmountable right? Or you can overthink something positive that all of a sudden it's not positive anymore. I mean, I grew up in a church culture that if I, if I put together a day or two where I was not worrying, I worried that I wasn't worrying. Before I move on from this woman, i you know I I tried to get inside of her head in the time that I meditated this passage of scripture, and it, it evoked this particular question: lost her husband, lost her son. I think we have to ask ourselves the question: Do we ever really possess anything or anyone? Do we? We act as if we do, don't we? No, really, this will cause you to experience them even better, to realize that you don't possess them, you just have the great privilege of experiencing them. That causes you to process loss a lot easier. Because there are a lot of people in this room, I'm sure, that have suffered significant loss in the last two years in particular. And it's been apocalyptic, hasn't it? It's been unveiling. It's revealed some things to you about you, about where your real trust was. About, you know, you see, God, God is not jealous of you, but he is jealous for you. He's not neurotic. He's not jealous of you, but he is jealous for you. And so when he sees that there is something that is beginning to bleed and drain your affections, then he feels no compunction to preserve it on your behalf because he will not share you with another. Oh, you see, I told you, some of you would hear, you mean God took it from me? I didn't say that. Love does not possess, cannot be possessed. This is Kahil Qabran, a brilliant Muslim mystic and poet, do not think that you can direct the course of love, for love, if it finds you worthy, directs your course. So this story that is drowning in death, (laughs) Jesus sees this woman, and this word that has been, are you guys still okay? This word that has been so cheapened, is probably one of the most powerful and descriptive words that was ever ascribed to Jesus. He had compassion. It's a guttural word. It really is. It's a guttural. You know, the language of Arabic nations and the Hebrew nations, have you ever noticed it's a very guttural language? It has breath behind it he has compassion may, maybe when he saw her in this condition and was so moved by it that his stomach began to churn he may have gasped because there is something happening here that was more than meets the eye which by the way can I tell you Uh, I, I should have learned this 40 plus years ago, but I didn't. I learned after a while. When you're with someone that has gone through tragedy, trauma, significant loss, just be there. Don't feel the need to say something. Just be there. Now, see, when we read these verses of scripture, we assume that you know, what did it take me less than twenty seconds to, or thirty seconds to read that whole text? We we forget that all of this may have transpired over several minutes. Maybe it was extremely awkward. I don't know. You know, we see Jesus walking straight to the bier, the platform that this dead body is on. They're going to take him out, possibly, and burn him. cremating. Maybe Jesus just walked up, and he just stood there for a moment, and it was incredibly awkward. You know, uh, I'm going to talk about control here before I conclude my comments. But uh, I've always been, well, in the first half of my life, so to speak, thank God I'm moving into the second half. I've I've had a propensity to be controlling. Shocking, I know. Um, (laughs) And um, so, what does that have to do with an awkward moment? I can tell you, God has had I know He's had so much fun in the last few years putting me in the most awkward moments because I want to know where it's going to start and I don't want to know where it's going to end and I want to know everything in between. And he is consistently throwing me into situations where I come to this incredible revelation of a wise man that said four things as he succinctly summed up life. Life is hard. Life is not all about you though you think it is. You are not in control. And you're going to (laughs) die. So the great secret is learning how to die before you die. Being confronted, as Thomas Merton said, with your false self, which is nothing more than window dressing. Getting to the point where you don't believe your own press. (laughs) Awkward. I I just kind of felt like it must have been awkward. And, And so this is what he's helped me with. I hope it helps you. When things get really awkward, it means that none of us at all are in control, and we are painfully aware of it so that he can do what he's desired to do all along. (laughs) She loses her only son. Do you think it's possible? Hey, when Jesus put his hand on that platform, on that beer, this is what I sense might have happened. Because he hadn't he didn't, had met the woman. You know, in the world of secular mediums, so <laughs> I wish some of you could see what I'm seeing right now. In the world of secular mediums, they ask for an object, don't they, from the departed? And you say, well, that's witchcraft. I, I, you know, I'm not getting into the occult or anything like that. I'm just trying to help you understand that there's a connection there. When Jesus put his hand on that beard, do you think that the history of that young man and his father and his mother instantly flowed through him? And this is what evoked the compassion. He didn't have to be told, he felt it. Which brings me to this whole thing of empathy. Because see, we have made the mistake, I have for many years in thinking that the purpose for the the sole purpose for the incarnation was a rescue mission that he came here to save us from our sins but in reality he came here to save us from ourselves i'm not negating or discounting that he came to save us from our sin singular i should have said because your sins are not your problem it's a sin singular that is your problem and that sin is not being conscious of who you were. And so we have made it worse as preachers constantly majoring on the human depravity of man and not on man's original goodness. And you were singing earlier about awakening. What are you awakening to? What are you awakening to? You're awakening to your original consciousness. You're awakening to who you were before you were even conscious of yourself, because he knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. He knew. And you need to know that you didn't come from your parents. You came through your parents. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Wait a minute. And this whole human experience, human experiment that you're having right now is you're walking through life trying to regain the consciousness that you had before you manifested in time. So what does that have to do with the incarnation not just being about the atonement or at one or a rescue mission? The sole purpose for the incarnation, please stay here with me, because this has everything in the world to do with the texture of this text. The sole purpose for the incarnation is so that he could empathize with you. Empathy is the echo of someone else's pain. And in all of God's infinitude, in all of his limitless characteristics, until he became one of us, he could not feel what you feel. Why did he become one of us? Because of his irresistible, inescapable, indefinable love had to come. Am I getting too loud? Had to come and live in one of these. He didn't just have sympathy. He had empathy. He had compassion. She didn't need a teacher. She needed a touch. So much of when, I, when I'm doing this, and I've been doing this all these years, I feel like, am I really making an impact? I mean, I, I understand. I said this years ago. Other people getting credit for it. You teach what you know, but you impart who you are. If you don't get anything that is notable, I pray that there's something that is imparted in this room. And I can tell you without fear of contradiction that the reason why you incarnated, the reason why you manifested in time, you want to know why? I mean, that's the number one question. What is the will of God for my life? What vocation should I pursue? Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to live? You're missing the point. The sole purpose for you incarnating, you want to know, is so that you could have the same experience of the rabbi and that is so that you could empathize in solidarity with the rest of the humans that you interact with, so that you can feel what they feel. And if you do that, then you are a success. It's not about your achievements, your accomplishments. Man's life does not consist in the abundance of things Jesus said, did he? Didn't he say that? Your life does not consist in the abundance of things, the accumulation the achievements. No. If I am able somehow to connect in solidarity with other humans, especially those that are very much unlike me, other than me, understanding that the kingdom of God is far more inclusive than we ever, ever imagined. It's been raining on the just and the unjust since the beginning of time. And the sun's been shining upon the just and the unjust. And we are wasting our times quibbling over who's inside and who's out. Who's in and who's out. I'm tired of that argument. Anybody else? I'm tired. For God so loved the world, His love is far more inclusive than we ever, ever imagined. So is it possible that when he touched that beer, that there's this <laughs> rush that goes through him and he feels everything in their history? I think that's entirely possible. I mean, this woman's life is already precariously positioned on the razor's edge of death itself because of her present circumstances. And now in this, in this moment, he feels what was excruciating for her. What comes to mind when you hear the word excruciating? Yeah, pain. I told you I was going to talk about what to do with your pain. We don't get out of here without it, do we? I'm, I Listen, I, I understand that there can be redemptive value in my pain and in my suffering. It does not in any way trump his suffering. Because I do believe it is finished. There's no question. I mean, that's a non-negotiable. But it's going to happen at some level—mentally, emotionally, relationally, whatever. It's going to happen. So what do I do with it? There are people in this room that are carrying at a level that cannot be seen. Have you ever heard the term epigenetics? Anybody ever heard the term? I see a few. Uh, there's a very popular book entitled The Mind or The Body Remembers What the Mind Forgets. Uh, simply put, it's profoundly simple, but simply profound to me is that the body, at a cellular level, remembers things that your mind has learned how to suppress or segregate. But the body doesn't forget. That's why, you know, we hear this used a lot today you got triggered, right? Anybody been triggered lately? Well, see, it's at a cellular level. These scars are at a cellular level, and the science says that it can be transferred generationally. Now, I know we've been redeemed from the curse of the law of sin and death. I understand all that. He was made a curse for us. So don't start quoting scripture to me. Because some of these people, they don't need your scripture, they need something to help them to process their pain. Uh, Let me tell you a story real quick uh, that I think is very relevant to this. Have any of you ever heard of broken heart syndrome? You have? Some some of you maybe haven't. I'll try to tell the story as quickly as I can. My wife and I have a friend uh, that we've known for 45 plus years. It was my wife's best friend. Her first husband was my best friend, Uh, He drowned over 20 years ago. He had a 12-year-old son that watched him fall off the back of a boat at Lake Waccamaw, North Carolina, in a storm, and he watched him drown. He was days before his 13th birthday. I'll go forward and then come back. A few years later, she marries again. She has a son by this man. She's married almost to the day and same number of years, to this man, and he dies of a massive heart attack. She has two sons by two different men. They both die almost on the same day in the same year. Now, prior to that, our friend, and I have permission to tell the story. I tell about it in my book, Breaststrokes of Grace. We were doing everything we could to console her. We had her to come away with us on vacation we did our best I, we remember waking up in the morning hearing the most guttural crying i've ever heard in my life to leap forward i could share more details to leap forward not long not too long after that she developed what appeared to be some cardiac problems she goes to the doctor and they run a series of tests. They can't find anything, you know, wrong with her heart. There's no blockages, none of those issues that are the usual suspects. They're mystified by this, but they know that this is not phantom pain, it's real. cardiologist said, I know what I need to do. I'm going to send you to a neurologist, goes to the neurologist, and after they confer... They both concluded a very, very real, valid condition that she was suffering from broken heart syndrome and advised that if she didn't find some way out of that, that it was just as threatening as cardiac arrest. Maybe this woman, after the loss of a son and a husband, that she too is suffering from broken heart syndrome. I'll wrap up with this. I think a lot of people right now, in my experience, have uh, reached the place where they're tired of being stronger than they actually are. Tired of being stronger than they actually feel. Many of them feel crushing condemnation, they feel bad, because they're not able to do something about the situation that they have no control over. They find themselves running on fumes just to get to the next time where they can refuel or to another meeting. So they start the vicious cycle over again. The fatigue that you're feeling right now, it's not in your muscles. That's where it's manifesting. It's in your mind. (laughs) Yeah, there, there just comes this point when it's, you just can't do it anymore. You just can't. And I can tell you, blaming yourself perpetuates it. The strongest thing, and I know this from personal experience, the strongest thing, the most courageous thing you probably could ever do in your life is to surrender to it. That is so counterintuitive. There was a time in my life, many, many, many years ago, I'm in the back of a bus somewhere in North Korea with a father who has Alzheimer's, an aging mother who's now 91, special needs brother, seven years older than I am, and I'm on the other side of the world, and our lives were under significant assault. It looked so threatening that everything that we had worked for, our whole lives, was going to be gone. I'm in the back of this bus going to Pusan and I'm sobbing and curled up in a fetal position crying out to God and he very simply said to me he says do you really think that you're the one that is holding all of this together Do Randall Do you realize that the harder that you try to be strong, it's actually making you weaker? See, the way to the resurrection, the way to our own personal resurrection, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, right? See, the only way to resurrection the only way to coming into new realms of glory, not on the other side, but here, is by following him in his example. Because our Redeemer is pictured as a naked, beaten, convulsing, hemorrhaging Savior. And they said, he saved others, let him save himself. And they didn't even realize because of the way it looked. Come on now. This is not something you wear around your neck. This is not some totem. No, because of the way it looked. They didn't understand that transformation, resurrection was on the other side. on his way. I had more to say, but there's not enough time. He's on his way to Golgotha. And do you think it might have echoed in his ears something that he had said to his disciples? Take up your cross and follow me. And he collapses under the weight of his own cross. Remember that? Had to mess with you, won't it? He had to have somebody else help him carry it the rest of the way. What do we do with our pain? I've been trying to help you get your mind around it in a better way. If you feel like you're about to collapse, go ahead. Go ahead. Because the way up is always first down. Some of you, epigenetically, there are scars because these these hurt more than the kinds of wounds that bleed. It's way back there. And I am not minimizing how egregious it was. When it was done to you, who did it to you? Whether it was sexually, emotionally, verbal abuse, whatever. Whatever. But I can ask you a question that at first may sound rather strange. Who's responsible for your pain? Well, Immediately the image of that person comes in. Your, no, not now. Not now. You're responsible for it. It happened. It was unfair. It was unjust. Yeah, it's, sure it was. What about the man that I just described? Sleep-deprived, back-viscerated, right? He is eviscerated. His bowels are hanging out. His eyes are swollen shut. Every bone in his body is pulled out of joint. When you talk about pain when you go to see a physician, they usually ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, what is it? And if it's excruciating, it's a 10, which comes from the word crucifix. And he experienced all of it, stripped naked, mortified, humiliated, spat in his face. Come on. But what did he do with it? He absorbed it all, and he transformed it. One of the great thinkers of our time says, in this human experience and journey, we either learn how to transform our pain, or we become transmitters of it. in the scapegoating culture, stand, please, in the scapegoating culture that we live in, that goes against every sense of justice, doesn't it? But the most innocent man that has ever breathed on this planet had the worst injustices committed against him. And he understood something that many of us have yet to understand, the transcendent, transforming power of forgiveness. So, Father, uh, I know that there are people that came into this room with pain uh, physically, emotionally, and on all the levels that we've mentioned, and um, some of them have just abdicated. They've decided that they are going to learn how to manage it, and that's not your best for them. You. if our earthly fathers would do everything in their power to take away from us these kinds of experience, how much more would our heavenly Father, which is in heaven, we, we sing you're a good, good Father. That's who you are. That's who you are. We need to know that, Lord. We need upgrades in a significant way on that one. Anybody? We need significant upgrades on that one. Now, you were asked earlier, and I'm going to ask you to do the same, and I think it's appropriate that you just open your hands in front of you. Just open your hands in front of you. And uh, I believe the Lord wants to begin to take you on a brand new curriculum. He wants you to get excited about new lessons you're going to learn, and you're going to begin to see the wisdom of letting go. The wisdom that says, why did this, doesn't say, why does this happen to me? But what is it saying to me? What did you come here to teach me? Because everything and everyone is my teacher. We'll teach you far more than what you get in seminary. If we learn how to pay attention. So I release it now because you have a desire to fill my hands with something far better. I release whatever it is, the sexual abuse, the, uh, the disappointment in God, and I, I release, I, I think I have, I, no I do, I have the authority to do this. Uh, I have the authority to release you from every false sense of you being a disappointment to God because you've never been a disappointment to God. When do you think he discovered your propensity to do something? When you did it? So it's impossible for you to be a disappointment to him because in order to be a disappointment to him, you'd have to do something he didn't already know you were capable of doing. (gasps) That's a breath of fresh air. Breathe that in right there. (laughs) Disappoint me. You no, know, I hear people say a lot of times, God hasn't failed me yet. And I want to say, whoa, 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 yet. <laughs> Gotta make sure I'm holding out one thing that he just might. <laughs> so we release it right now. Can you do that? We release it right now. We release it. We 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 thank you that you are teaching us how to navigate this life experience, to experience empathy, and to know that pain is not my problem, it's my perspective on it, it's how I process it. That's not the problem. Help me to see the way I see my problem is the real problem. It's, yeah, that's the real problem. So thank you for saving us, continuing to save us. Thank you that you have saved us, you are saving us, and you will ultimately save us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. You survived! You survived! You survived! Amen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Gate Charlotte's Podcast. Consider subscribing so you don't miss a message. We're sending this to someone who might need encouragement today. Thanks for joining us.